0: will not you open your Bibles with me today to the book of Jude? Um, if you're unfamiliar with this short epistle in the New Testament, we know at the end of our New Testaments is the book of Revelation. Well, Jude, you're going to find it just right before that, those one or two pages before the start of the book of Revelations. Um, as you know, the elders will be rotating. Um, Lord willing, I plan on my rotation um, two weeks here in, 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 in May and two weeks in July to go through this entire book of Jude. Um, and we can go through that together. Uh, calling our attention now to the first four verses in the book of Jude, in the, this epistle of Jude, uh, verses 1 through 4. Let's go to God's word. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you, beloved. Although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, appealing to you, to contend for the faith once deli- to the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God. In, in, into, into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Holy Father in heaven, gracious God, we know that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry for this heavenly food, that it may nourish us today in ways of eternal life, through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Amen. Amen. Toward the beginning of the 20th century, Orthodox Christianity had fallen under attack from what has become dubbed the fundamentalist modernist controversy. Those in the Orthodox or the fundamentalist camp held that scripture was the ultimate authority in all questions of doctrine and life and all teachings of the church. They held closely to and confessed the truth of the historic Christian creeds and confessions of our faith. The modernists, or the liberals, on the other hand, rejected the idea of the inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible. They rejected the possibility that the supernatural events recorded in the Bible had ever taken place. Events such as the virgin birth, the miraculous healings performed by Jesus. And they even denied the very resurrection itself. Instead, they argued for likely scientific explanations, or supposed exaggerations by eyewitnesses, as a means for dismissing these events. In the midst of that controversy, a young professor of New Testament studies at Princeton Theological Seminary by the name of J. Gresham Machen mounted a staunch opposition against the modernist attempts to redefine the Christian faith. In 1923, Machen went on to publish a scathing critique of his opponents in a little book called Christianity and Liberalism. In the book's introduction, Machen makes the following observation. Listen closely to this, loved ones. The type of religion which rejoices in the pious sound of traditional phrases, regardless of their meanings or shrinks from controversial matters, will never stand amid the shocks of life. And the spears of religion as in other spears. The things about which men are agreed are apt to be the things least worth holding. The really important things are, the, are those things about which men will fight. Well, today as we come to these opening verses in Jude's letter to the early church, we see one of the most often repeated lines in the New Test- of the New Testament. Just as Machen called the church into action to defend the truths we confess, so too in this letter to the early church, Jude urges those who belong to Christ to contend for the faith, faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Well, we're introducing a new book, so we need to talk a bit about its author. So who exactly was Jude, and under what conditions and circumstances did he find it necessary to remind believers to rise up in the defense of the Christian faith? Well, we can see in verse 1 of this letter, the author identifies himself as Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. And from this short description, we can look further into our Bibles, and we can discover more detail about exactly who Jude and James were. If we look at Matthew chapter 13 or Mark chapter 6, we can see that James and and, and Judas, or Jude in the short form, were named among the brothers and sisters of Jesus. Matthew 13, verse 55. Is not this the corporate son? Or is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Now, before we start to concern ourselves that such a revelation calls into the question the truth of the virgin birth of Christ, we have to remind ourselves that nowhere in our Bibles are we taught that Mary remained a virgin after the birth of Jesus. We can see within the New Testament and from the testimony of the early church that Mary and Joseph went on to have other children after Jesus. After Jesus was born, James and Jude were therefore his half-brothers. We also know from Acts chapter 15 that James was a leader in the early church at Jerusalem. And several third and fourth century documents also list both James and Jude as bishops in the church in Jerusalem. Now what's important for us to note here about both James and Jude is that both of, although both of them wrote New Testament epistles, they did not base their authority on being from the household of Christ. In James's letter he refers to himself just as Jude does, as a servant of God. And being bond servants or slaves to Christ, this indicated that they had been given a divine commission to write these letters to the church. However, we see that Jude was writing to the church to address completely different issues from what his brother James was addressing. You see, the believers to which Jude was writing were being deceived by false teachers who had weaseled their way into the church and were promoting an era known as antinomianism a term which essentially means no law. Those of you who attend Sunday school regularly may have heard that term before. You see, what these false teachers were promoting was the notion that since Christ had suffered and died to rescue and forgive sinners, that there was now no need to obey God's moral law. And they were using this teaching to justify all sorts of sexual immorality within the church. And it was under this circumstance that the Lord's servant Jude writes to the early church in Jerusalem, with an aim not only to rebuke and to condemn these false teachers, but to urge the faithful to be diligent in defending and proclaiming the one true faith delivered to them by the apostles. As we look at these first four verses today, I want to draw our attention to three things in Jude's opening statements. I want to first draw our attention to the called. Secondly, I want to draw our attention to the condemned. And thirdly, lastly, the commission. Starting with our first name, the called. Let's look now at verse 1. Jude starts his address to to the church this way. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Now what exactly does Jude mean here when he refers to faithful believers as those who are called? Well, let us look for a moment at the Apostle Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians to gain a a clear picture from a different and separate New Testament writer. That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14. Here we have the Apostle Paul writing to believers, warning them about some of the same things that, Jude, that the early church was dealing with in Jude's day, warning them that of the coming of the lawless one, lawless, lawless one and of the false teaching that would follow. Paul writes, starting in verse, t- verse 13, But we are always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first few fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here we see that those who are called through the gospel of our, lo- of our Lord are not so called. Be- uh, here we see that those who were called by the gospel of our Lord are so called because they were chosen by God to be saved. In Reformed theology, we refer to those so chosen as the elect. New Testament writers, no less than Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Peter, all repeatedly refer to those who trust in Christ as the elect. And the Apostle Paul makes it abundantly clear that, in this, elect, that this election is by the grace of God and not dependent on any decision or action or merit in our part. Ephesians chapter 1, he goes on to state, starting in verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. You see, God chose those who would belong to him when? He chose them before the foundation of the world. And in this sovereign choice, it was according to the purpose of his will. And those of us that he predestines for salvation are expressly called by him. And his elect hear his call. And his call is entirely effective. We see this in the words of our Lord in in John chapter 10. Christ goes on to say, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. our own Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 10, articulates this truth in the following way, stating all those whom God has predestined unto life, and only those. He is, he is pleased and is appointed and accepted time to effectually call by his word and spirit out of a state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. And loved ones, we can rest knowing that not only has he chose us has he chosen us to be called out of sin and death and to newness of life, but he has also promised to keep us there. Look at the end of verse 1. Jude refers to believers as those those kept for Christ. What is notable about this phrase is that in a letter that goes on to focus primarily on perseverance, Jude grounds his argument in the gospel truth that the Lord keeps those who he has elected unto eternal life securely in their salvation. He does not let them fall away. You are his, and he will not let you go. In the words of Jesus found in John chapter 6, verse 24. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. The Apostle Paul goes on to assure us in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. And in this gospel truth, we can rest in the, assur- in the assurance that God's word gives us, that in his sovereignty, he has elected us because he loved us, that we are regenerated by his spirit and so-called causing us to trust in the life, the death and the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, who in his finished work has freed us from our fallen natures, freed us from the power of sin and death, placing us into his holy church, And we can rest knowing that his call is effective in bringing us to saving faith in him. Knowing that none of us who are so called are ever so lost in our sin that we choose to reject him. And those of us who he has made his will be held by him eternally secure in our salvation. Secure, waiting as the entire creation groans for us to be be revealed in that last day. Jude's letter goes on to give us an opportunity to contrast those who were called against those who reject God's truth. That brings us to our second point, the condemned. Drawing our attention now to verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. You see here certain people had crept into the church and were promoting false teaching. And they are set out in stark contrast against the called, against those who are kept for Jesus Christ. They are referred to as the ungodly people. They are those who set out to to distort and destroy the truth of the gospel. Now notice the first defining characteristic used to define these ungodly ones. They were those long ago who were designated for this condemnation. The biblical truth being declared here is the reality that God leaves those who are not predestined for his call in their fallen state. He leaves them in their sin and just condemnation. Just as it is true that God in his sovereignty has elected those who believe and trust in him to eternal salvation. It is also true that God in his sovereignty has chosen not to save all. God's word makes it perfectly clear that the reprobate, those who reject God's truth who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, are among us. They are those um, whom Matthew, Matthew 13 tells us will be thrown into the fiery furnace in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And as we see here in Jude's letter, they are sometimes among us in our very churches. Now, I know this, is doc, this doctrine tends to make some of us a little uneasy. It's not something we like to bring up in conversations when biblical truth is being discussed and defended. We may tend to imagine that this biblical truth presents God as being unfair and arbitrary, as Roger taught earlier this morning in Sunday school. you know, um, We want to make God like us, but he is not like us. And it's necessary for us to remind ourselves that God would have been perfectly just if he had chosen to eliminate the entire human race, condemning all to eternal punishment due to our rebellion against him. And just because we find it difficult to understand why God in his mercy has sovereignly chose only to save his elect, leaving the remaining in their sin, this does not give us the right to question God and to pass judgment on him according to human standards. It's important that we take note that the Apostle Paul, as he does in so many other situations, Paul anticipates this objection when he's teaching this doctrine to the church. Romans 9, verses 18 through 21, the apostle goes on to write, So then he has mercy on whoever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. What what will, what will, what will we say then? Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? To make out of the same lump one vessel of honorable use and another of dishonorable? As Christians, we should be aware of the comfort that is found in this doctrine. This truth allows us to rest knowing that those who seek to deceive the church, those who seek to manipulate and cheat and do harm to the body of Christ, they will face their due punishments. As God has shown throughout redemptive history, he keeps his word. He keeps his word in rescuing those whom by his own eternal decree belong to him, and he keeps his word in bringing judgment against the enemies of his church. Not only are these ungodly ones designated for condemnation, but Jude goes on to give us the key, one of the key identifying marks of a false teacher. They deny Christ their only master. Now there seems to be no indication in Jude's letter, that these false teachers were making direct attacks of the person, on the person and work of Jesus Christ. They were not trying to convince the flock of Christ um, that he was not who or the apostles had claimed he was. Moreover, there's no indication that they, uh, that they were proclaiming that the work of Christ was somehow ineffective in calling believers to salvation. We have to be careful here, because we tend to deny the presence of false teaching we tend to sweep it under the rug if it's not blatant and direct. But that's not how false teachers come. They don't wear signs around their necks proclaiming their denial of Christ and his gospel. No. Scripture tells us that Satan comes as an angel of light, Second Corinthians, verse 11. Chapter 11. False teachers come as wolves in sheep's clothing, as Matthew tells us. And a lot of gaslighting tends to go on in the church today especially when it comes to popular leaders within the church. You might hear said often when false teaching arises, oh, you misunderstood what this person said. That's not what they said. That's not what they really believe I know them. You must have misheard. But we have to be aware that this false teaching is often subtle. It's subtle until it's not. These false teachers Jude was dealing with here, although they were not denying Christ directly, they were denying his authority. They were claiming that God's grace gave them license to sin, that God's moral law no longer applied to them because of the forgiveness they had in Christ's sacrifice. The error of this teaching clearly went against the teaching of the apostles to the New New Testament church. Again, Paul writing in Romans chapter 6 deals with this distortion of the gospel. In verses 15 through 18, the apostle goes on to write, "What What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or disobedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin have become slaves to righteousness. This is the teaching that these false teachers were denying. This is these teach, the teaching that the false teachers were, were manipulating to deceive the church. And in deceiving themselves, these false teachers were perverting the grace of God by promoting and participating in some form of sexual immorality. And as the Apostle Paul states in Romans chapter 3, their condemnation was just. And as believers, we should pause here for a moment. And we need to realize That we were under this same condemnation as the false teachers were before Christ called us. Well, it may be true that many of us don't commit the same kind of sins that were being addressed here by Jude. It's nevertheless true that we commit sin that separates us from God just as far as the sins of these false teachers. We are exactly where they we were once, exactly where they, where they, they were. This is who we were before the Lord called us out of our depravity. By the power of his his spirit, turning us away from our disobedience, our rebellion, calling us into his church to be adopted into his family, destined for eternal life. Calling us by grace, not based on anything that you have done or failed to do. As Harrison Perkins puts it, Christian, you are not gods because you are holier, not because you are smarter, nor because you are more willing to do the right thing. Because, but because God has called you in love, that he has freely set up on you, and because every day he preserves you in the faith. How sweet is that gospel that the apostles taught us? How sweet. And as Christians, we are called by Holy, Holy Scripture to stand against those who seek to bring harm to the church of Christ through this false teaching. And that brings us to our third point, the commission given to us in verse 3. Jude goes on to write, Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered for all of the saints. First of all, we need to notice that Jude had the intention to write a letter to the church other than this one concerning our common salvation. What's important to note here is that Jude is not referring to here all those things which we can agree on. We often see in the church today appeals to ignore or to sweep under the rug difficult or unpopular teachings from God's word by suggestion that we would be better off if we just focused on all those things that we all agree on. However, this is not what Jude was referring to. The Greek word used for salvation here, um, so "teras," is not a reference to getting saved, the common use of the word today. Instead, it's referring to salvation at the end of the age on the day of judgment. It's as if perhaps Jude had sought to encourage believers with that truth of what would ultimately be accomplished on the last day, helping, encouraging them, pointing them to, to their future glorification. However, with the arrival and the influence gained by the false teachers, Jude saw an urgency, an urgency to admonish the church to stand against those who would pervert the truth of the gospel. Now notice the manner by which we are called and encouraged to make this stand. We're not called by force. We're not called to use cunning, cunning rhetoric or, or dominance. No, Jude admonishes them to contend for the faith once delivered, to be able to stand firm and be able to articulate God's truth to unbelievers. Now, the first century Christians to which Jude was writing, what exactly was the faith once delivered? Well, it was the teaching of the apostles, the teaching that some of them had heard, had seen with their own eyes, heard with their own ears. And here we are in the church today, some 2,000 years later, with these teachings recorded in Scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit, made more accessible to us than any other writing throughout history. And if we are to stand against those who seek to distort or diminish the faith once delivered, we're going to have to know what is taught in Scripture. That doesn't mean just becoming familiar with and knowing how to find those verses that tend to inspire us, that make us feel better. doesn't mean mining scripture to find our life verse and repeating that off over and over again. No, if we're going to contend for the faith once delivered to the saints that means we're going to have to educate ourselves. And when the subject, of, when the subject is Christianity that means we're going to have to know our Bibles. And understanding our, understanding our Bibles means knowing Christian doctrine. Now the study and the defense of sound Christian doctrine has fallen out of fashion of late. We often hear phrases from so-called evangelists as deeds, not creeds. Such words offer to suggest that it's not really important to understand biblical truths such as the nature of Christ's atonement or how he is to be properly worshipped, teachings about who he is, how he saves, how he has communicated his truth to the world. You know those who say such things will have you believe that you can properly follow and give God his due worship without knowing anything about him without bothering to study and to learn what he has revealed in time to mankind. We often might hear something to the effect, really all of this doctrine stuff, all it does is create division within our church. Why can't we just love Jesus with our hearts? And while good works and loving our neighbors are essential to the Christian faith, both of these lines of argument when held up against God's word are found warning. First of all, the assertion that we should just love Jesus in our hearts is unbiblical. That's not what our Bible teaches. Matthew 22, verse 37. and And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Secondly, how are we to follow the biblical admonishments given to us by such New Testament writers as Peter and Jude to always be ready to make a defense or to contend for the faith once delivered. If we neglect the deep study of the truths of our faith, the first and most obvious place we should go to learn this truth is the written word of God. Contained in our Bibles is God's inspired word, his special revelation to mankind. As Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 15, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and in training in righteousness, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Moreover, in the Reformed faith, we have our confessions. Being a Presbyterian church, here at Hope we hold to the Westminster standards, which include the confession of faith as well as the longer and the shorter catechisms. These documents contain a systematic overview of all that is taught in Scripture. And for the last 380 years, these standards have been written. They've been made available for the world to examine, allowing the Reformed churches to set out the clear teachings of Scripture, clearly laying out the faith once delivered to the saints. As one writer put it, in order to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, we and our families need to know that faith. And if you are not catechizing your family in the faith once delivered, then someone else will only they will use the catechism of the spirit of this age. So in light of Jude's admonition in verse 3, let us take seriously our need to attend to the means of grace on every Lord's Day, to take advantage of the Sunday school lesson that your session provides for you every Sunday, to study God's word and to know and to understand the confession of faith, allowing us to know and to obey all that the Lord has commanded And closing today, closing this teaching on the first verses in Jude's letter, I wish I could report to you that J. Gresham Machen won the day in his fight against liberalism creeping into the northern Presbyterian church. However, that's not how the cards fell. Due to ongoing, continuing controversies, Machen was tried by his Presbytery in 1935. He was found guilty of violating his ordination vows. He was consequently defrocked and suspended from the ministry. Two years later, when he was on a trip to Bismarck, North Dakota, promoting the foundation of a new Presbyterian denomination known as the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, a, a denomination that's still with us today. There's a church um, in Alexandria. Machin fell ill with pneumonia, and he died on January 1, 1937. And although on that last day he was mostly unconscious, and one of his last moments of lucidity, he dictated a telegram to be sent to his friend and colleague, a young, fiery Scottish professor named John Murray, at the newly formed Westminster Seminary, which Meechan himself had played a role, an instrumental role in starting. And in that telegram, it, it, uh, Machin had, la- had, had spoken his last words. He wrote to his friend, I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ." No hope without it. You see, loved ones, Machin with his dying breath, wasn't resting in any of the works that he may have accomplished in his life, although he accomplished quite a bit. He wasn't resting on his own perceived merit, looking for what he had done or what he had, or worrying about, what he had failed to do. No, Jay Gresham Machin was resting in the faith once delivered to the saints. A faith that contained that sweet doctrine. That sweet doctrine that everything that God requires for us to be reconciled to him. Every letter of God's holy and righteous law was fulfilled by our Savior, Jesus Christ. And for those who believe and entrust in him, there is no no condemnation. No condemnation because he has taken our place and suffered the wrath that we deserve. No condemnation because he has imputed his perfect righteousness to each and every believer bestowing upon us a righteousness that is not our own so that we will stand blameless on that last day of judgment. Not only has he so rescued us, but he has promised us eternal life with himself in the new heavens and the new earth. A place where there will be no more sickness, no more corruption, no more false teaching, no more pain, and no more death. A place where he will reign as our righteous king forever. Amen.